first thing that that we've had to really adjust in our mind here is why this idea of why be good when we can be great. And what I mean by that is always thinking about the next step or the next 10 steps of what you think you're supposed to do and then take the 10 steps forward and just do that one instead. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey, everyone. My guest today, Eddie Rivas, CMO of Magnolia Bakery. If you don't live in New York, east coast of the U.S., you might not have heard of Magnolia Bakery But as a marketer, this is a brand and this is a CMO that you absolutely need to know. So the business has been around for a while, but Eddie has come on board relatively recently. And he and the team have just done some amazing things. They are cranking out viral hit after viral hit. They are taking this brand and baking, sorry about the pun, it back into current culture. People are talking about it. They got on the Good Morning America show recently for one of the campaigns that they did bringing back an old YouTube star. They're doing so many fascinating things and I loved hearing about Eddie's approach, philosophy, how he's built the team and the culture, especially within the Magnolia marketing organization to be able to do this. So it's a great one. I love love how he talks about how he's on a mission to show the world that marketing doesn't have to suck. Eddie, we are all supporting you. Fantastic episode. Please enjoy Eddie Rivas of Magnolia Bakery. Hey, Eddie, how are you doing today? Good, Eric. How are you? I am great. Apart from being stuck in this WeWork phone booth, because I didn't book a room ahead of time and I didn't bring my mic. Apart from that, I'm doing great. Um, Although I have to say, I'm pretty hungry (laughs) prepping for this episode and looking at all the stuff you're doing and just thinking about how long it's been since I've been to Magnolia Bakery. So I have to ask, I mean, one of the best perks of the job must be all the food you get to eat or do you get to a point where you're kind of sick of it? Ah, well, you know, I used to work in a different food category of yogurt (laughs) and there was definitely a plateau in that category of too many tastings and too many innovations and like it all became the same thing. Um, when I moved over to desserts, I can say after 18 months here, I have not gotten sick of it yet. Um, it just really messes with your brain. Like we're trying Thanksgiving pies in July. We're trying oh, holiday man. items in, in May. So it really just messes with you because we're constantly living in different times of the year with our food and our planning. But um, no, have not gotten sick of it yet. Um, I think my friends have gotten sick of it because all I do is bring Magnolia Bakery to birthday parties and events now. But I, I haven't found the plateau yet. I'm still, I'm still in it. What's your, what's your order? What's your favorite thing? Because I'm definitely going to check it out when I'm in New York in a couple of weeks. Oh, man. Uh, my everyday order you can get off the menu um, is a chocolate uh, pudding parfait that we do. It's not always there. Um, but if you can snag it out of the icebox, um, definitely go for that. If you have the, the appetite to pre-order... Um, pre-order any cake with the chocolate uh, peanut butter buttercream. Okay. It's it's another level. So we have a tradition at Magnolia Bakery that on your birthday, uh, you get whatever you want from the bakery. You get a cake and you can get whatever you want. And one year, someone in the office got, uh, last year someone got a this peanut butter buttercream on their cake and everyone lost their mind. 
Because, <laughs> you know, we have, we have so many recipes and we have so many innovations and so many products. We have like over 300 that you can, that you can possibly make. Um, we forget about our own stuff all the time. And we're like, oh, we didn't even know that we still have this peanut butter buttercream sitting in the drawer somewhere, like this recipe somewhere. So that's my ultimate favorite. But if you're just in the bakery, a chocolate pudding parfait is one of ours is next level. All right. I am all over that in a couple of weeks when I'm in New York. And I guess it's, you know, I always say you should eat your own dog food as a business, right? right. Like experience your own product. <laughs> it's easier for some than others, isn't it? More enjoyable for some than yeah, others. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, um, thanks for making the time. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You've been doing some really exciting stuff with the team over at Magnolia. Uh, but first, let's start with, tell us about a brand that you're obsessed with right now and why. Yeah. So this this is going to be maybe an unconventional answer because they're not a, what I'm thinking of is not necessarily like brand in a conventional sense, but because of the US Open happening right now and all the attention around it, um, Serena Williams branding as the goat and just the consistency of that message and market right now coming from different creators, different stakeholders, different companies, different campaigns. There's not one campaign that I'm like obsessed with from like Nike or a different partner, but, um, Serena Williams as an idea and what she's about and what she stands for is, is truly noteworthy and obsessive worthy, I would say, um, it's just been, it's been everywhere. Like I can't get on TikTok without seeing a video from ESPN or the US Open. And I can't get on Twitter without seeing a post from a creator or an influencer or a celebrity or a brand. And I think she's just doing a great job <laughs> on, on her personal branding and who she is. So I'm, I'm going to give it to, I'm going to give it to the goat right now um, because she's, she's been consistent. She's been progressive. She's been, she has a great point of view on the world and what she stands for and what she's going to be about. And I think that that always makes a great brand, but um, I just can't get away from her right now. So I'm going to get to her. Yeah, I, I really like that answer. And it definitely is a brand. You know, personal brands are as much a brand as product brands are. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I always say the best brand is a great product. And that certainly, you know, qualifies when it comes to Serena, but also... You know, it seems like she and her team have done a great job at executing this quote unquote campaign of her kind of like last hurrah at the US Open and announcing, or it's not retirement, right? It's like right. conscious uh, decoupling from the game or whatever. Hiatus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the execution has been pretty good as well. So I really yeah. like that. And she's magnetic. Like about. any brand is a brand that people want to be around. And like there's very few brands like that in the world. And um, she is just, there's a magnetism about her that I think is so again noteworthy and just obsessive worthy. Um, so yeah, I've been obsessed with her lately. Um, and I don't even like tennis and that's the craziest thing is I don't even like tennis and I can't stop reading the news and following her stories and watching her clips. Like, and I don't even like the sport. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, uh, dive into the interview. So why don't we start with, if you can just kind of give like a quick one to two minute overview of your background in marketing, uh, how you ended up in Magnolia, maybe kind of a quick, I know you've been there for 18 months. You don't have to go through everything that you've done, but just kind of like what those first 18 months has been like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm a, I'm a unique, um, CMO. I would say I don't have your traditional MBA background and upbringing, um, I cut my teeth at first on the agency side for many years, uh, both in Chicago, New York City, San Francisco, and internationally. 
Um, and then on the agency side, I just realized I didn't want to be executing on other people's decisions. I wanted to be making the decisions and be close, as close to that decision making as possible. So I had an opportunity to jump over to the brand side at Trevani um, and follow a couple of mentors over there. Uh, I was there for about five years, left leading the entire marketing organization as the VP of brand and media, um, and then had an opportunity to step into a transformational role with Magnolia Bakery. Um, a brand that's been around for 26 years, people love it, people know it, um, but wants to scale and wants to grow into new channels and, and growth and expansion. And what better opportunity for a, a growth-minded, sort of GM-minded CMO than that? Um, and so for the last 18 months here, uh, I've been really focused on a, a few key things. One is sort of upskilling and building out a marketing team um, and making sure that our resources and, and our time and our attention for the brand are put into the right places. Um, I lead our D2C business. Um, and so figuring out how to scale shipping banana pudding nationwide, shipping cakes nationwide, cupcakes nationwide, product innovation, um, channel innovation, channel growth. Uh, and then I'm also leading a, a not so top secret project, but can't really talk about it yet of um, where you'll be able to find Magnolia Bakery next. Um, if you take a look at my background, it should be pretty easy to figure out where we're going. <laughs> it's not London, is it? Uh, it's not London. No, it's, uh, it's much more convenient and easy than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, put London on the roadmap for me if you can. Um, amazing. So I actually jotted down three or four things within even just that quick overview that I'd love to dig into. Um, why don't we, before getting into everything that you're doing at Magnolia. So first of all, in your background, you've mentioned now once in the interview and once before we press record, mentors. And so I'd just be curious to kind of get your perspective on, you know, clearly they've had a big impact on you and your career. For the marketers listening, how do you think about or how do you advise people to find and get value from mentors if maybe they don't feel like they have found the right one for them yet? Yeah, definitely. I have found most of my mentors in the most unexpected places. Um, and I would say the first the first thing to be thinking about is you're thinking about, oh, I really need a mentor or I'm being told consistently that having a mentor is a great idea and a thing for me in the business or my marketing career or just my career trajectory in general. Um, typically, I say that your mentor is probably right in front of you and they're probably actually not doing what you figured they're doing. <laughs> and so what I mean by that is I've had um, two incredible mentors in my career um, and I there have been moments, the highs of highs and the lows of lows of them. I've gotten along with them great. I have not gone along with them great. We've had different points of views on the world, but part of my objective of a mentorship is I want to grow um, and I want to be pushed to grow. So it's, I can't just be around marketers who think like me because you're, all you're going to do is inflate yourself and actually not see different points of views on the world or how work is made or, or where we can go with it. So um, one of my mentors is actually an ex, she's now a CEO, but she's an ex-account person from the agency side and strategy and account were never <laughs> supposed to get along. Um, and I found great business acumen in her. I found great mentorship and great, um, personal growth from her and how to behave as a human being and how to behave as a leader. And I credit her a lot for my success as a team leader and a team builder. Um, and on paper, it's like, if I was at the agency, they'd be like, Oh, go get mentored by the CSO or go get mentored by this VP of strategy. And I was like, no, I like the managing director more. I want to go talk to them. Um, and so I've known her. She, she was the first one to hire me in New York when I moved from Chicago. Um, and we've been tight ever since. And then my, my other mentor um, is actually a designer and has a design-minded sensibility and is one of those people that can talk, talk about the craft of design and the world of art 
for hours. I can fall asleep in a museum in two minutes. You don't think it should be the relationship that works. But um, by, by having that person as a mentor and, and asking them those tough questions and, and asking them for feedback, um, I myself was able to see the world through a different point of view, especially as my growth as a marketer working with creatives, whether in-house or with agencies, um, and understanding what they think about and how they think and what they need to do their best work um, so that I could create that space. So I usually tell people, I'm like, look, like you're going to get pushed to be a mentor. You're going to get pushed to be a mentee. Um, if you don't feel like an authentic magnetic attraction to that person, whether it's because they're different or because they're doing something that you're interested in, um, don't force it and don't try to just get the mentor who's going to help you get to your next step of your career. Um, both of my mentors that I've had, I've now known for over eight years each, um, consistently. And I, we text all the time. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think there's, um, there's something to be said with, um, your expectations going into mentorship that you really have to think about and, and understand what you want to get out of it. That's going to give you that navigation to who's the best mentor out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I agree in large part, but the way actually I've thought about it, although now I'm going to add a bit of how you think about it to how I think about it, but the way I, how, how I've thought about it in the past is I, I think people's perspective on mentorship is way too narrow, but I've always thought about it more from, Everybody's looking for the capital M mentor, I call it. The like one person that's like you in 20 years that you can learn everything from. And I've always said, much like you, like the mentor is, is around you. You just don't know it. There's so much you can learn from literally probably almost anyone that you come and come. Everybody has something to teach you. And so I've thought about it like that. But I actually really like that uh, kind of what you're saying of like, hey, there are different dimensions of what people have done that actually could be even more helpful as a mentor than someone that's exactly like you. Because if they're a major in this thing and you're a minor in it, they could help make you a major in it. Like the design side, like the commercial side, which is certainly a red thread. You know, it's great having this podcast and do these interviews because you start to see consistencies with successful CMOs. And one of those consistencies is I see a lot of people that, you know, maybe they come from a creative background or a strategy background background, but a lot of them have gotten some kind of commercial MDGM experience or mentorship at some point. Um, so that's great. That's a nice, nice little tangent to get things started. Um, I'd just be curious quickly, um, you know, when I think about Chobani, obviously a very successful um, challenger brand in the yogurt space, and actually, you know, think about this until now, they were a client when I was at Mullen Low back in the day in Boston as well. And on the PR side, though, because that's back when I was doing quote unquote social media and they didn't know where to put it. And so it was in the PR department. Um, wow. That's funny. I didn't even think about that until now. Uh, you know, reading a little bit about what you did at Chobani, I'm very interested in how you built the internal agency. So maybe you could talk about that for a second, but if you think there's something that was more important to, you know, how you, how you did that role and how you built that brand, I'd be open to that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so building that team is going to be a highlight of my career um, until I'm done with advertising and marketing and, and the side of the house. Um, the first thing that I'll say that we did differently as a team, building that team, because it was a team effort to build that team out because we had um, creatives coming on board. We had marketing strategists. We had internal transfers that were happening. Um, I would say that one of the things as a leadership team that we decided very early on is we wanted to make sure that we basically built what we call like the Avengers or the round table of, of a marketing team. 
Um, because when you're building an internal team, a creative team, it, there's two paths that you can go down. You can either go down, it's going to be a strategic partner in the business who are going to wield power and wield decision-making and sit at the highest level of the, of the table you can be at, or they're going to turn into an internal studio. And prior to a lot of us joining the Chobani team, that's what the company had turned the internal team into as a studio. And I think um, Leland, who really started, who led that effort on, on building out the first round of us on the leadership team to come in and help him build out this vision, it was, it was, a, it was a, almost a mandatory to say, we are going to hire different. We're going to hire people that scare us. We're going to hire people that think differently. We're going to hire people that are going to scare the people in the organization. Um, and we're going to hire people that have strong points of view. And we're going to hire those people and we're going to give them and support them and put them at the best seat of the table that we can do. And it was a really incredible um, transformation there as we went through it because we were really not thinking about the work other than it was the work that we knew we had to do and to create something amazing. And then all of a sudden, we started getting requests from retailers and from partners and from our and agency partners and press that were just like, "What's going on at Giovanni? Because something is different. Something is something is happening. It's it's seen in the packaging. It's seen in the design. It's seen in the product innovation." And eventually we realized it was because we had taken this internal agency and broken down every silo that you possibly could imagine. We had creatives going to sales presentations and top-to-top meetings. We had marketers sitting in customer meetings, presenting marketing plans with sales teams right next to them and, and being excited about it. We had internal meetings that had um, creatives on stage presenting, followed by finance, followed by marketing. And we just we just had this groove, I would say, that was... Um, unstoppable with with the type of people we were hiring. And it allowed us also to create a really magnetic environment that the best people wanted to come work at. Um, and so I'd say the, the first thing you have to do when you're thinking about building out a great internal team or you have this ambition to become Ad Age's internal agency of the year is take a look at who's your company now and then find as many people as you can that are going to compliment them, but look totally different. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget I, my favorite meetings were where we had this, you know, this designer who had a master's and a BFA and, and knew Matisse and knew all these, you know, the nuances of craft and design talking to a sales team leader who has 20 years in the business of CPG sales. And there was a common thread and there was unity and there was, you know, empathy and passion between the both of them for the work that we were doing. So I think that's like one of the most important principles of, of building out these internal teams is you have to, you know, I could have said like, I want marketing strategists that have MBA backgrounds and I want to hire from the best schools. And that's a fine approach and you'll be successful. Um, when I look at my marketing strategy team, like my marketing director came up through social. I had a, a, an amazing team of marketing strategists that came from a consulting background and came from data houses and and um, big brands and small brands. And it, we just built this this like strange group of people that you looked at us and you're like, there's no way that you're all friends and you all get along and you all love the work you do. But um, we let the work do for ourselves. And we were we were acknowledged for it and rewarded for it. And and I think that's that was really a secret sauce of the team was um, the people we hired were not who you thought we should. And that was a bold decision, but it paid off in the long run. So there must have been... Um, and yeah, I'm a big believer and I think that gets talked about a lot more now, although should get you know, talking and doing are two different things. I think there's a lot of businesses that talk about how diversity of thought leads to better and more creative, innovative outcomes. And there's fewer businesses that actually do it. 
But there has to also be kind of like a connective tissue or something at the core that brings all these diverse backgrounds and perspectives and personalities together in order for it to make, in order to actually make it work. So how much do you intentionally think about that and define that? Because I guess what I'm getting at is a big, a big job of the leader, whether you're, you know, the VP of marketing or the CMO or, or CEO, whatever it is is clarity and alignment on what matters most, vision, purpose, mission, all that stuff. Um, so how did you define that at Chobani? And then maybe we can use that as a transition because I know a big part of what you've done over the last 18 months at Magnolia is building out the team. How have you defined that for Magnolia? Because it definitely seems in the output of the work, which of course comes from the input of the people, that there is a consistency of vision, even if it comes from a diversity of talent and perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so at Chobani, um, it came, it came through in three ways, I'll say. Um, the most, the most practical and, and the easiest was the bonus system change to where everybody was bonus on the same thing. And so regardless if you were a designer, regardless if you were a salesperson, regardless if you were in finance or you were in legal, everybody got bonus on the same thing. So that immediately, and that's a big decision to make as a business. And I credit the, you know, the top guns at Chobani at the time for making that decision. Um, it created a level playing field in the room when it came down to the work, when it came down to the decision-making, when it came down to the why we are doing this and why we're going to do it. Um, it was, it was very clear to everybody that we all had the same objective and same outcome, um, which was really exciting and, and made for us to be able to move faster and think faster. So that's sort of like the easiest one I can call. Can you share what it was? Be really curious if you can. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to because I don't know if I can. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, fair enough. No, fair enough. But even that. So the salespeople and like the marketing designer were bonused on the same thing. Wow. Okay. For the most part, for like the core of the bonus, I'm sure there were there there were other incentives on on sales side, but like for the core of the bonus pool, like it was the same thing. Um, the the second piece is we had we had such a clearly defined culture of our values and who we were as a company. And it started the moment that you were interviewing for a job there to when you decided to leave. Um, everybody wanted the same thing in the world of the company. We all wanted to see the same thing happen. We all wanted to be a company that used food for a force for good. So that when decisions came in that, hey, our, you know, my policy team came to us and said, there's a school district in Rhode Island that's about to send a bill out to students for school lunch debt. And we can't believe that they're going to like, penalize and punish kids because they can't pay a school lunch debt and we're a company that stands up for that that doesn't seem right what can we do about it i can look at the policy board and say like we're the same person we want the same thing what do you need how can i help what can we do as a team to help make this thing happen um and so i think because we all have the same set of values well you know everyone dials up different ones and everyone values the value a little bit differently depending on what you're doing and, and what you want out of your career but I would say that we had a very clearly defined set of values and, and it was defined for us at Giovanni as better food for more people. Um, and that spoke to a democracy of food. It spoke to the accessibility of food that there was never like, you know, I think I've seen sometimes in some of my organizations that my friends work in, the marketing or the brand team will do something and everyone's kind of like, eh, it's just the marketing team going off and doing something. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Like let them go do it and have fun. Like it's not going to impact my work. Versus at Chobani, what I saw was we would take these actions as a brand in our communities and they'd end up in top-to-top -top sales presentations for the customers because it's how we differentiated and it's how we were different than our competition and why we want that customer to take us and give us that distribution over somebody else. 
Um, and so that, that cycle of benefit to everybody in the company, regardless of your role off the values was really important for us. And then I think the third thing is the, the company just constantly listened and evolved to the, to the talent population and to the employee population. Um, and, and we were really forced out of our comfort zones in a lot of ways. I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I was leading our kids business at Trevani and Lisa, who is my creative partner on the business. Um, we were told to go to Idaho and present the kids campaign to all of the plant workers in Idaho. And we had to do over four shift meetings. And it was like, you know, 4 p.m. shift meeting, 11 p.m. shift meeting, wake up at 5 a.m., the 5 p.m. shift change meeting, and then the next day. And we did it because everyone working on the kids campaign in New York and Soho was not a parent. We were, we were hoping that the work was right. And then we're like, wait, we have an entire population of parents in the plant who have a, who love this company as much as we do and love this business as much as we do. Put the work in front of them, get their feedback. Does it make sense? Are they excited about it? Um, and that was a really, to me, that really tells on the culture and the idea of how we could all work together was, a, you know, ECD at a brand stepping in front of 400 plant workers on a shift change meeting and saying, I'm going to show you my work and I want your feedback. Um, I would, I would argue that that probably doesn't happen in a lot of places. Um, and it's not pushed and encouraged in a lot of places. And so that's, that's a lesson I've taken with me even now, um, is, is to be very open to feedback as a marketer and that marketing and brand don't own the brand, which is like very antithesis to brand management, which is why <laughs> it's not my style to, to go in that, that traditional route. Um, but if you work at a company and you work at a strong brand, everybody is a brand manager. Everybody loves the brand and everyone should feel empowered to give feedback and to um, provide thought and provide input and provide ideas. And all marketing and brand does is they facilitate it out into the world. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a powerful differentiator in brands that people love and brands that just are sort of creating a thing like a product that people love out in the world. I really like that. Um, actually just jotted that down because I'm, I might use that as the, as the teaser for the episode. But the other thing that I remembered as you were talking is I actually, I actually listened to and really enjoyed the Chobani founder did an episode of uh, masters of scale, Reed Hastings podcast. If you listen to that a while back, so I'll find that and, um, I'll put it in the show notes for people, but yeah, it's one of those brands that, and often founder led Brett, I don't know if he's still involved, but you know, founder Brands where the founders have an outsized impact on the culture of the business often have that. It's a bit of an advantage in a way, right? Um, whereas if you have to kind of create it amongst a bunch of people without someone being there and literally embodying it and telling the story repeatedly, it's a little bit harder. But So let's use that and let's jump into Magnolia. So how have you thought about kind of that clarity and alignment for the marketing team that you're building out uh, and the work that you're doing there. Yeah, we're, we're, um, we're building here and it's probably one of the biggest challenges that, that I reflect on and, and face is, you know, we, we have a company and a brand that employees love working at and people, consumers love, they love, love, love. And that's a challenge, right? It's a double-edged sword because you're going to try new things. You're going to grow, you're going to move into new channels and you're going to have more attention on those decisions than just, again, a brand that exists that kind of just floats by. Um, and so from a marketing perspective, what's that meant, what that has meant is I have been looking for confident leaders on the team and I've been looking for, for a lot of those different perspectives and diversity of thought um, to where if I look at my marketing team now, I'm actually looking at some of them now because I'm in the office. <laughs> I, I look around and I go, 
I have a marketing team at, Mag- at Little Old Magnolia Bakery. That's why I say Little Old Magnolia Bakery. Um, I now have a marketing team that is led by a creative who came from PepsiCo. I have someone here from Kind Snacks. We just hired someone from, uh, she previously worked at Milk Bar many years ago, but a competitor. Um, we just hired a person from Anheuser-Busch. We have people from the agency side that have made the jump over to the brand side. And so I think what, what we're trying to build here is we're trying to build a company that is going to have people working at it that believe we're bigger than we are and can do more than what we can do. And that's going to hopefully be our special sauce as we continue to scale is I just don't want the person that's worked at the local bake shop. I just don't want the person that has scaled the local New York brand um, because we want to be more than that. And we're going to be more than that. And so bringing this diversity of thought in through a very confident team that um, looks and acts bigger than we are um, is going to be something that I think a lot of uh brands and and the industry is going to be surprised on over the next 12 months and what we decide to do. Um, but I want to have it any other way because I, I want people to walk in and say like, yeah, we're a little Magnolia Bakery and we're about to take over the world and put ourselves back into culture and put ourselves back on the map. Um, and that's a very difficult talent to find, but um, they exist usually at big companies and they're people that want to do more at those big companies and they can't because of the scale. So you bring them into a smaller one and then boom, off they go. <laughs> Um, so it's been, it's been a pretty wild ride on the talent pipeline and development here. I love that. And, um, I get it. Like I can see the authenticity in how you talk about it. I can kind of feel the energy and the excitement and, um, yeah, I mean, like maybe I'll apply for a role. (laughs) We'll take that. (laughs) I got got plenty, I got plenty of work we got to do. So come on over. The other, like it, it appeals to the right person. I'm sure, you know, um, the other thing, and I was smiling a little bit because actually, so we do uh, we do our own research on kind of what drives the growth of challenger brands. And it's like roughly a, each month, we kind of do some primary research, some secondary research and put out a report. And one of the ones that we did a few months ago was on um, what we called puffer fish challenger brands, which is exactly what you say, how challenger brands are able to puff themselves up to make themselves seem bigger than they are. And a lot of that is culture and creativity. A lot of it, and what we were looking at was specifically kind of media channels and how out of home makes you appear bigger than if you just show up in a Facebook feed and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's great. I'll send it over to you if you're interested in it. Please, I'm super excited about that because I think we, we definitely probably play by that playbook a little bit um, and the decisions we make. Yeah, it's really cool. It's, it's probably my favorite um, bit of research that we've done so far and also just the image of like a puffer fish yeah like a a really good mascot for somebody that's cool cool so take it take me 30 minutes to get to the big question that i actually wanted to ask you um and what i thought would be the the meat of the conversation but let's see how much we can cover on this and i think we've already talked about a lot that ladders up to it so i pulled a quote from something you posted a while back and you said when i joined magnolia bakery I told the people involved to buckle up because we were putting this brand back into culture. Now, I will include some links in the show notes. Uh, And actually, if you're listening, just pause this for a second and Google Magnolia Bakery and look at some (laughs) of the recent campaigns and activations that Eddie and the team have done. But I'll include them in the show notes as well. It's it's really exciting. Um, And I think if you've listened to the first 30 minutes of this interview, they make a lot more sense. Like there's context and you understand how the sausage was made in a way. Um, But 
I'd just be curious for you to unpack that a little bit. And I think there's so many different directions. You know, you talked about building a brand that people love. Of course, part of that is culture. You talked about Magnolia Bakery and it having some nostalgic value that maybe could be revived. Uh, you talked about how you get the team energized to bring exciting ideas to the table. So whatever direction you want to take that in, I guess my question is, how do you put an old brand back into culture? Oh man, we're gonna need way more than thirty minutes for this. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best to 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 unpack this. Um, it's it is one of the more challenging aspects, I would say, of this job right now. Is it's the way to unpack it is to show up and watch us work every day, um, and see how we move and see how we think. Um, I'll be the first to say there's no there's no deck that outlines this. There's no um, book being written about this. There's no um, lesson. Like, and I'm a teacher. I can put a lesson together. I, I can't even put a lesson together for this um, because it's, it's, I think it's so complex and, and nuanced and with the people you have around you and the company you're at and the energy that you have. But um, to, to put a brand back into culture, um, the first thing that, that we've had to really adjust in our mind here is why this idea of why be good when we can be great. And what I mean by that is always thinking about the next step or the next 10 steps of what you think you're supposed to do and then take the 10 steps forward and just do that one instead. Um, and that comes down to how we plan our advertising campaigns. It's how we pick our partnerships. It's how we think about our channels um, is we have this constant challenger brand mentality in ourselves of why be good and we can be great. Why? And I'll give you a great example. Um, we did a partnership, a local partnership in New York with Jacob's Pickles. If anyone listening has ever been to Jacob's Pickles, it's like max indulgence. It's the best brunch spot in New York City. It's an hour and a half wait on the weekends. And the team was ideating and they were like, oh, wouldn't it be funny for the April Fool's post on Instagram this year to do fried chicken stuffed with, um, or banana pudding pancakes stuffed with banana pudding and fried chicken. And everyone was laughing and we were having a good time. And then it took a push and I took a push with them. And I said, guys, what if we actually did that? Like why stop it at a, at a Instagram post for April fools and let's scrap that because every brand's going to do it. And we're not going to get anything out of it. It's a waste of our time. I was like, take this amazing idea, take this Genesis. and like, what if we actually did it? And the team of that were like, yeah, well, Jacob's pickles is in, they want to do it and they want to do it for the whole summer. And we're going to go to a tasting next week and we're going to try it. And we're going to have this amazing menu placement all summer on their menu. So if you ever went to Jacob's pickles, we had a whole third of the menu with our logo and the dish on it. Um, we sold over a thousand dishes in the first five days of the partnership. Um, influencers were obsessed with it. Local community, our local Upper West Side community was obsessed with it. And I, and I, I use that as like an example, like we got put back in the New York city culture, right? We reminded people that we are this dessert authority. We're this indulgence authority in the city. And we're just a few blocks away from Jacob's pickles on the Upper West side, by the way. Um, but it has to start with the idea of like, why, why take a good idea? Why not make it great? And why not actually turn this crazy idea that we have for an April fool's joke into something real and something impactful for the business. Um, and so that's a, that's a key piece that I think about a lot with the team. And we talk a lot about is, um, how can we make this great? How can we really make this something that's going to be incredible, whether it's for a business outcome, whether it's for how we measure it, whether it's for what we're trying to get out of it in terms of an objective, um, and then just push the idea and, and go as far as we can. It is also the same thinking that drove the, let's bring uh, the comedian Liam Kelly back, <laughs> who, if you guys saw, um, we were in a product innovation meeting offsite. We were talking about, we were going to launch breakfast loaves as a shipping channel on our site. And we were 
it was like a break during the meeting. And we're like, how are we going to launch this? Like, how are we going to make this interesting? And my marketing manager, Adam, all credit to Adam for this, was like, wait a minute, guys. Do you guys know the Muffins Man from the from that video from the early 2000s? Everyone's kind of like, yeah, no, depending on how old you were, we kind of like, mm, I kind of remember it. And he's like, what if we just did loaves instead of muffins? And I was like, yeah, like that sounds like a crazy idea. Why don't you write it out? Let's see it. Let's see what we start talking about. And by the time he met with me the next week, he had already gotten in touch with him. He had already uh, figured out the rate and the SAG stuff and then the production. And he's like, I need to go to LA in, in a month and we're going to shoot this video. And we're going to do it shot for shot, like the original, and we're going to promote loaves. And I think one of the things as a leader in marketing, if you want to be put into culture and you want to be part of that conversation and just part of the narrative of what's happening and creating it is you got to trust your team <laughs> and, and you got to give them the space and, and the, the um, trust to say you, you probably know and you feel good about it and your intuition says yes. So go with it and let's see what happens. And I'll be the first to admit, I was like, I don't really get this, but I'm going to, I trust my team. I trust Adam. And it became one of the best impressions of our year in terms of stories and storytelling the amount of credit we got from youth culture and from just bringing something so nostalgic back was incredible and breakfast loaves are now one of our top four selling categories on our website and all the credit and attribution goes to launching it in the most creative and interesting way and so i think that's that's a big you have to get out of your own way sometimes when you're thinking about culture and especially as a marketing leader, admitting to yourself like you don't know it all and you're never going to know it all, but you have a team and a really, especially a good team, you have a really good team of creative thinkers and strategists and marketers who are going to bring you crazy ideas. Your job is to say, this is a good idea, now go make it great. I don't, I don't get it, <laughs> but go make this a great idea. Um, and so I think those are just like two very, very small examples of stuff we've launched in the last like six months where um, we wrote culture. We wrote the best brunch in New York City. We wrote this nostalgic comeback of a beloved character that people had forgotten about. Um, and it was wild. Like, I mean, I was like sitting with like my team, like refreshing TikTok to be posted like a behind the scenes video. And it was like 1 million, one minute, 2 million, the next minute, 3 million, the next minute. And I'm like, brands would kill for this. There, there are agency meetings that go on for weeks talking about a TikTok video. And we just were like, hey, let's just post this behind the scenes thing we found, like put it out there. People seem to, to like it a lot. Um, and so I think th those are really big lessons for, for me as a leader, as I've gone through this to say, if you want to write culture and you want to be part of it, you've got to question yourself about how you can be great and not just good. And you've got to trust your team that you've built and their ideas that they have, because they are just going to be bonkers. And like the stranger, the idea and the more specific, the idea, the better it's probably going to be, um, when you put it out into the world. I, I really like that. Um, I really, really like that, that whole thing. And I think, um, I know that we're running out of time. So I guess, I mean, there's so many more questions I'd want to ask you about that. But I guess the one question, if I have to choose one, is I think everything comes from principles and process, right? And so I think the principle of why stop at good when you can be great, trust your team, give them autonomy, and that delivers more creativity and also speed, which I know we were talking about before we press record, but didn't really get into here is like the ability to move quickly to figure out whether you want to do something to come up with a new idea. You even said in that example, like he turned around that whole thing in a week. That really matters. And that's a huge part of what I think drives the growth of challenger brands. But if you had to pick just one, because there must be some process to this too. 
uh, um, you know, whether it's like a how you how you allocate budgets or if there's like a rolling brief internally or a weekly meeting where you, you know, do a brainstorm. Like, what do you think is the most important uh, process element in bringing a brand back into culture or what you've done at Magnolia so far? Uh, there's not like a, there's, there's a little secret sauce. I'm not going to give it away yet, but there is a little something that we could talk about, but I, I, I'll say it's not a weekly meeting. It's not a Slack channel. It's not a job title for anybody. I would say that I think what the, the secret sauce is, is that we have a culture here where it's about over communication and it's about full context for everything. And what I mean by that is when when your team has all the information in front of them from finance, from the business, from product, from production, from fulfillment, from supply chain, it, when they have all that context and when they have when they've done the work of spending a shift packing and spending a shift working in a bakery, um, when you empower people with that context, the process becomes so innate to them to say, oh, here's an idea to solve this problem or like, here's a really interesting thing that we could do and I know it's going to work because of XYZ, I saw that happen. Um, that is a part of the process, I would say, that is a differentiator for us. Um, you can ask my creative director, you could ask one of our associate designers, you could ask our marketing analytics what's going on in the business right now and they'll be like, here's what's going on in the business, here are 10 ideas that I think we could start to do around it. Um, they might be super commercial and tactical. They might be big picture and wild and out there. But I think part of what fuels our process is this over communication and this context that we encourage people to have in the company. Um, so that when they do th have that idea, that like crazy spark on a city bike or that weird, you know, wake up on the weekend, you're like, oh, that'd be such a, I can't tell you how many ideas came from like, oh, I had this idea over the weekend. <laughs> But they had the idea because they're thinking about the business and they're thinking about the company and where we want to go with it and the brand. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a pretty important part of our process um, is we, we spend a lot of time educating and ensuring that our teams have context. At least the marketing team has a, has a lot of context. Great. All right. I think we're going to have to leave it there. I know that we're up on time. Last quick question is, what is one thing that people should do differently after listening to this episode? <laughs> uh, the one thing people should do differently um, it's going to sound crazy it's going to sound strange um, but I think the one thing that people need to do differently is the next time you're working on a campaign or a launch um, take the plan that you think should do and then pretend like none of that stuff exists and how would you do it so because of Magnolia Bakery, we're scaling and we don't have $20 million TV budgets. We don't have $10 million to throw out of home. Those plans come up. We say, love the idea. Pretend out of home doesn't exist as a channel. Pretend TV doesn't exist as a channel. Pretend Instagram doesn't exist as a channel. How would you launch us? How would you talk about it? Um, it's my favorite question to bring up in planning and in creative sessions. So I would encourage people to do that a little bit differently next time they're looking at a plan of not just over interrogate the impression and the media plan and the strategy, but say, Hey, great strategy. What if none of this existed? What would we do? Um, and I guarantee you that you'll come up with something cool and something interesting and something that achieves the same objective. I'm smiling because you know why this podcast is called scratch. No, I don't actually. <laughs> because I, I believe the same thing. I think that like true innovation, true creativity comes from thinking about things from scratch for the world of today, as if you knew nothing about how they've been done in the past. Yeah. So I think that is a very, uh, 
very good place. I didn't even know that. Thank you so much. Just gave you that. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) There you go. Um, Thank you so much again. Where can people connect with you or find out more about what you're doing at Magnolia? Uh, It's my favorite thing to answer. LinkedIn is my favorite social network. It is like my number one. So just find me on LinkedIn because it's, um, I think it's a great place to be right now. Great. Well, we'll link to you in the show notes for sure. All right, Eddie, I will let you go. I'm looking forward to um, to coming back to Magnolia. Awesome. Yeah, we're looking forward to having you back. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.